Totally Football Show. Today, it's a Premier League full of names in bewildering places. The Blades in sixth. Burnley in seventh. Roberto in goal. We have a full roundup of everything, from things looking rosé for Jose, to Liverpool causing more problems for Palace than an Emily Maitlis interview, to Flamengo in Lima owning the Libs. All that and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Okay, listener, you're here, and so is Sasha Gurionov. Good morning, James. Of Oco Sport. I am. Good. That's Russia's official broadcast partner, the Premier League, of course. Daniel Story's here. Good morning. Good morning to you, Daniel. And we're joined, completing the triumvirate, by Mr. Tactics, Michael Cox of The Athletic. Hi, James. Hi to you, Michael. I tell you, you guys got some explaining to do because there's a bewildering, there's a bewildering set of circumstances in the Premier League at the moment. There's there's teams where you wouldn't expect them to be. Wolves, for example, suddenly in fifth. That yeah. came out of Wolves, nowhere. Wolves, only Liverpool have lost fewer games than Wolves, and they were 19th after about six games. It's mad. They've been lost twice. It's extraordinary. <laughs> it's extraordinary. And amongst all of this, a set of results that, that poses, that raises a lot of questions that I hope we're going to answer in the course of today's show. Uh, Daniel, mm-hmm. do you want to start off by telling us about the opening game of the weekend... Your trip to the London Stadium for West Ham Spurs. Yeah, Spurs' first away win since January, as um, Jose Mourinho was very keen to point out to all and sundry after the game. They weren't particularly good, I don't think. I think it would be fair to say that West Ham were worse than Tottenham were good. They were absolutely lamentable. So uh, Spurs weren't very good, racing to a 3-0 lead. Yeah. That, Did they race you, to it, though? You, can't, you cannot over, overestimate how bad West Ham's defending was and how... How much they gave up, even at 1-0. They're shirking tackles, misplacing passes. I think Pellegrino will probably go this or next week, and he deserves to, because they were, they, were they were wretched, they really were. I know that on your way to London Stadium, you were keen not to get caught up in the mm. whole Mourinho madness, but weren't you a little bit swayed? Yeah, they, there were signs of those quick wins that he'll look towards. Deli Ali was... He's been better in recent weeks anyway, but he was probably his best, and he's been for months. He played this kind of... Well, as close to a number 10, I guess, as we'll see him play, albeit still with Kane kind of carrying on, dropping deep, which is a bit new. We, we thought Kane might be this sort of, I don't know, Didier Drogba-style centre-forward that Mourinho likes, but he, he did carry on dropping deep. Both the wide plays scored, that's good. Ben Davies was pretty good at left-back, which I think Mourinho will prefer him over Danny Rose. So there were those signs, but Eric Dyer wasn't very good, I don't think. Um, they still conceded twice against a team that didn't really barely tried to score. So, not quite there yet. But. Okay. Naveen Peter says, I love zonal markings breaking down of Moo's opening game at Spurs. I think, is he referring to the, the tweet you put out? Was it Spurs being great or West Ham being terrible? Well, it was a bit of both. Anyway, Naveen says, can we have some more of this in the episode, Michael? Yeah, I think Daniel's being slightly harsh on Spurs. I thought they played well for the first half hour. Sorry, for the first hour. They're very much tied in the, the final half hour. I was interested in the way they played in, in positional terms. Sergio Rio was given real license to to push forward and, and form a front five with the uh, the other four attackers with Ben Davis tucking inside. It meant they played almost three two five in possession, which is 
a kind of system we've seen City do, Chelsea do under Conte, Liverpool to a certain extent, but I haven't seen it before from Mourinho. With the uh, wing-backs basically pushing up to support the front three? Well, no, with one full-back pushing forward. So Warrior played almost like a right-sided forward and Davis tucked inside from left-back to become a third centre-back. Right. Um, and I haven't seen a Mourinho side do that before. And I wonder whether he has, in his nearly year off from football, just spent the time observing what the best teams in Europe are doing and maybe make some uh, changes accordingly. Be interesting to see if he tries this against other teams that aren't West Ham that present the unique opportunities that the Hammers offer uh, their guests. I know you're going along to see Spurs again this Tuesday, yeah, Daniel, and, when they take on Olympiacos. Yeah, and he's got a, a, a very... Having won away at West Ham, he's now got Olympiacos at home. He's got Bournemouth at home, who are a little bit fragile at the moment. So before going to, to Old Trafford, he has got three games to really get them set to get a sort of jolt of confidence and of momentum in there uh, and obviously he will look to that that Old Trafford game is the first real big test I suppose of where mm. they're at 10 points from the top four mm. you wonder but, don't you yeah and level mm. on points of Manchester United so mm. you know if Man United still believe they can get in the top four under a con- significantly worse manager then then Tottenham can still do it all right West Ham unlikely to I'm saying mm-hmm. how much trouble are they in do you think they're now Two places and three points from the bottom three. Yeah, they look pretty hapless, to be honest. I think particularly with the positioning in the midfield, they were just played through so easily. I mean, Deli Ali was very good, but there was so much space for him there. Um, I've always had questions about Mark Noble in terms of his positioning without the ball. He always seems about five yards out of position and very keen to sprint very quickly into where he should be. Uh, Declan Rice, I, I just never quite got Declan Rice. He's played... He's played all right a couple of times I've seen him, but I'm amazed. He made that he's... some outstanding tackles in, in in the first half of this game, right? Yeah, which I mean he's probably You're... out of position yeah, to start I'm, with. I'm, yeah. I'm unconvinced by him really. Um... Pellegrini was has talked at length about the injury crisis, but they don't actually have or have had a single defender injured, and they are abysmal at defending. Mm. Yeah, the, Michael's right. The the midfield offers far too little protection, but. They're just, they're just making really bad decisions. Sasha, you're a goalkeeper now. Any chance you could be free for next Saturday for West Ham? <laughs> Something they're dead desperate yet, but what, uh, what Daniel said about their heads going down at 1-0, mm. you know, you see, it was, it was close. It was close to him and also Son wasn't far away when he was shooting, but I think... We're talking about Roberto. Roberto, yeah. It was the way he pulled his hands away from the it, shot. It, it's that not was just really that, it's just, I think, maybe it's hand position, but I think he should be basically saving that. And oh, yeah. So you're, you're at nil-nil, you're playing Spurs, who got the new manager, and then your goalkeeper should save something he doesn't, and it happens week after week, and I think the shoulders just drop off the rest of the team. Okay. The, all the hallmarks are there of the manager getting sacked. You know, they were booing substitutions, they were jeering when Roberto literally picked the ball up. Uh, the ground was pretty much empty by full time. Right. Spurs fans were singing ch- uh, Sacked in the Morning and all the home fans were applauding it. I mean, it's not a good look. We could have two Latin American managers at London clubs with the initials MP gone in the space of a, mm. a week. And they will not be the only ones, I don't think, gone. Well, Ooh. with the initials MP from Latin America. Definitely Boston. those only ones. Those, yeah. <laughs> um, well, there could be quite a rush on, on, on available managers very shortly when you look at the situation that at other clubs like Everton and Arsenal too. We'll come on to later on. Who who would you say would might be in pole position for, at West Ham, for example? What, to replace Pellegrini? Pellegrini? <laughs> it makes me laugh, but West Ham have always been a club that have taken Arsenal's sloppy seconds, for want of a better phrase. Um, spare parts, for a slightly better phrase. Uh, so Emery to West Ham kind of fits to me. 
I think. Well, he'd have to get fired by Arsenal. You're I think that's suggesting... the smallest barrier in the way is his <laughs> job at Arsenal at the moment. But are you saying realistically there's a chance he might get fired by Arsenal and then picked up by West Ham? Well, I, if you take out of his Arsenal reign, he would be a great appointment for West Ham and they haven't really got that many other options. The, the only, their only other option is to go for a pragmatist, but... You know, like a Mark someone like Hughes. A, or but, a Rafa Benitez or someone like that? Or, they, they'd be keen on Benitez, yeah. but I think he's committed for slightly longer term in China. Right. I gather someone who is very keen on the job and is letting it known that he's keen on the job is uh, Chris Hewton. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. That would be a pragmatist, right yeah. backs team, mm. etc. I mean, they've mm. already done Moyes and they've already done Allardyce, so it has, there's only so many <laughs> left. How, how bad is the situation? Once they get Fabianski back, and when is he due back? Is January. It January? Mm. It's well, a long way. Right, okay. Looking difficult then for West Ham, but much rosier, as I say, for Spurs. After this, let's get on to the situation at the top, that exciting Man City-Chelsea game and all the rest of the title battle. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Liverpool Saturday afternoon got the win away at Palace. Sasha, you were there. You'll tell us about that very shortly. You can tell us now if you like. I mean, Liverpool basically doing what they do, winning late and getting a bit lucky. They, they keep on getting lucky week after week. And I think that has to do with teams basically tiring. Because if you look at the defending on that uh, corner from which Firmino scored, it's basically Palace players falling over because I think they put so much effort into actually getting back into the game. What about Lovren falling over on the Tompkins goal? So, yeah, the Lovren falling over, well, in it, my initial reaction was, um, OK, that's, that's a goal. And then they all started complaining about something. And then only then we realised that that was a push. I mean, it is a push. Uh, does it matter whether he, he's going to win the ball? Sort of having thought about it, probably doesn't. Um, so, and, and then Hodgson after the game said, look, yeah, it's, it, it, that, that, that was a push there. It was fair to disallow it. Uh, yeah, perhaps Liverpool got a bit lucky. I think Lovren got a bit lucky as well because he was the one that put Liverpool in that situation in the first place because mm. there was an initial, initial long ball coming in. He miscued his header, which led to Trent Alexander-Arnold pushing over Zaha. And then that led to the um, to the instant. Um, so yeah, perhaps they're a bit fortunate. But I mean, I spoke to Van Dijk after the game. He's like, "What do you think about that?" He just basically shrugged. Whatever. We carried on. It got disallowed. There's no point to dwell on it. And I think this is a very important part of Liverpool mentality. They just don't dwell on things at all. And I think that a lot of it comes from Klopp. Uh, you know, putting putting stuff basically out of their minds when there is no need to focus it on him on anymore. And you know, to go slightly further back, that disastrous final they had. Um, in Kiev that they lost they kind of shrugged and went okay that's out of our mind we're just going to carry on, carry on. and if you compare it to the way Spurs dealt with the defeat or particularly Pochettino dealt with the defeat in Madrid sucked and went away and thought about it and kind of mopped around you can see sort of the different approaches and the mentalities of the two clubs so when Liverpool are on the cosh when Liverpool maybe even do concede late they go okay we'll go again and then we will we will win the game from this point and Maybe it's happening too often. I mean, of the last six games, they won three and drawn and got a draw in the last five minutes. Mm. Uh, perhaps happens too much, but at the same time, you could say, well, the game is 90 minutes long. It certainly is, or, or, or indeed often longer, Daniel. We need to decide officially whether it's cloppage time or Yergi time. Um, they're both good options. Yeah, which do we think? I think cloppage time is good. Okay, is that we'll, right? we'll go with that. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that uh, Man City's sluggish start or slightly nervous start against Chelsea, owed something to the fact that they'd just seen Liverpool extend the lead at the top even further? Probably not. OK, then. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty phenomenal match. Probably the second most entertaining game of the weekend. The Their 2-1 victory over Chelsea. Uh, oh, here's, here's another request for Zonal Marking's tactical breakdown. This one's from Gautam uh, Kahadka. Uh, he's obviously going to talk about the game, says Gautam. I'd love it if Zonal Marking would break down the tactics... 
in the City-Chelsea game and explain how City regained control of the match. What do you think, Michael? Was it City being great or Chelsea being terrible? Well, a bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> I watched this game twice, actually. First time, I really, really enjoyed it, oh. uh, particularly the first half. And then I watched the first half again. And I realised I enjoyed it because both teams really had no shape in midfield. I thought particularly with City, they didn't seem to know what system they were playing, which is not something you really say of Guardiola's teams. They weren't sure whether they were playing Rodri just behind with two ahead or De Bruyne alongside Rodri. And there were so many occasions where Rodri was sucked so high up the pitch and Pulisic and um, William were playing, uh, you know, finding space in between the lines. And I don't really know how they gained control, to be honest. It was such a, you know, slightly fortunate goal that got... Uh, got them back into it and then Mara's doing what Mara's does right but I thought overall City's passing in midfield was as bad as I've seen it for With the, over I mean, the, a the years. stat that everyone pointed out was the fact that this is the lowest in all of um, Pep Guardiola's 381 games in charge that he's actually had a team with less than 50% possession was part of the issue that Chelsea did what Chelsea do which is not last a full 90 minutes I think Chelsea I think young team work in progress and I think they just got rattled by those two goals which weren't particularly logical because I mean the, the, they, the, I think they actually had loads of possession after they opened the scoring mm. and then the De Bruyne goal kind of comes out of nowhere really and I think they're dwelling on it and they switch off when Marius cuts inside and after that I think the fact that uh, I remember Kepa passed it straight to Aguero just shows they were completely rattled and I think at that point they just lost the shape and concentration Right. Um, and I think I, I was wondering about the, you know, the shapelessness of the City mi- uh, midfield Is it, did they change the way they press or something because I think the reason Rodri could have been higher up the pitch was probably trying to get on top of Jorginho. Because I think that was happening. I think Liverpool tried to do that against against Chelsea as well. And then that's when Fabinho went further up. Well, it was almost the other way around. Jorginho okay. was pushing up really high on mm. Rodri. And then Rodri seemed really concerned with Kante's runs. They didn't okay. really ever deal mm. with Kante's runs, obviously, for the goal. Um, and I thought, actually, another problem was Silva and Aguero just offered nothing without the ball. They were kind of just standing around, which is what you associate really when Pellegrini was there. Indeed, now Pellegrini's at West Ham. But usually you associate Guardiola's teams with really pressing as a unit. But mm. this was quite disjointed. I thought it was actually really alarming for City. As in, going back two years, I, I haven't seen them play in tactical terms. I haven't seen them play that badly. Do you for think that a, bit, a bit of their fire has gone out? I don't know about that. I mean, I think for the first time you're looking at this team and it probably needs a bit of an overhaul. Okay. You know, obviously Silva's leaving at the end of the season... Um, and I think that will change the way they offer it. Fernandinho is leaving. It, it did look slightly tired to me, and there's certain players who've come in who I'm not entirely convinced by. I mean, Mendy's never really done it for City. I thought he was a great player at Monaco, but there were a couple of occasions here. He just switched off for two or three seconds and yeah. let players in behind him. And yeah, I thought it was quite a bad display from City. I'm, I think, I guess the caveat to this is, Chelsea have played very well before and not won. Right. You know, the first day of the season at Man United, they lost 4-0 when they were the better team. So they have got this this in them to that, kind of just not get the results they deserve. Yeah, that basically breaking Chelsea down into two halves this season. They've won all six of the games they've played against the bottom half. Right. And they've only won two of seven against the top half. And those two were against Wolves when they're in no form and Burnley when they're in no form. So they are clearly struggling to match up against kind of big it's, six or top top half opposition. Is that a managerial thing or about the players on the pitch? I think at the start of the season they were getting they looked a little bit naive they were getting, they got caught by Sheffield United on the counter they got caught by Leicester they got caught by Manchester United two or three times just pushing on too far as in we want to impress we want to be enthusiastic we want to score goals and I think maybe against the best teams doesn't actually apply as much I don't think to, to Saturday's game but they are they do look a little bit like they overcommit and get caught um, 
obviously having Kante fit all season, which he hasn't been, might have helped that. But yeah, I think they are they're slightly naive. But we were to, we are talking about a team kind of in the the new months of a new manager, so mm. it's kind of fair enough. Yeah, they're miles ahead of where we expected. Yeah. It's funny we, we've almost become accepting that this top four is going to be the top four at the end of the season. But I certainly didn't expect Leicester and Chelsea to be what nearly ten points clearer of the other realistic contenders for the top four. And it's a, a world away from the six nil they suffered last season under Maurizio Sarri there at the Etihad. Uh, Aguero going off injured. And it might be a lengthy absence from what the way Pep was talking about it. Yeah. Having said that, I mean, to back up what you were saying, he's actually only been involved in one of their last 16 goals, Man City. Mm. Really? Yeah. Lionel Scaloni's coach Argentina, said that he arrived with an injury, left with that injury got, that had got a little bit worse and predicted that he would suffer a period out of the team soon. I wonder if it's just a bit of an accumulation thing. And I, I honestly think if, if Gabriel Jesus had played better over the last month when he's come on or started, I think he probably would have got more game time anyway. Right. The question now, I suppose, is whether they do that Sterling as a central striker or or Jesus. I think the problem with Aguero as well is he's often had a kind of month out midway through a season. It's not just he's out. He often really takes three or four games to look back at his sharpest. It's almost like he has you know, confidence issues with, with coming back from an injury. So that could be very damaging. Okay. I thought there was a nice moment actually, uh, well, for me in my head, um, in injury time, just before the Sterling goal, um, uh, when Mason Mount stood up to take the free kick in like 92nd minute, because there was this footage that he put on, on Twitter earlier, uh, I think earlier this week, where he's, I don't know, he, he's a teenager and he's uh, taking a goal kick and he's talking about kick, kicking it near the valve and he's going to put the top bins and he does and then he runs away celebrating with Tammy Abraham. And for me, like as he was lining this up, I was like, well, if this happens, but it just didn't. Chelsea have a trip to Valencia coming up on Wednesday. How's that going to work out? In what is a really tight group, they, the Valencians, lost Che, and Ajax all on seven points. So it really could mm. go... Well, and Valencia obviously won at Stamford Bridge with another they, of those... They did, didn't they? Soaking up Chelsea pressure and then hitting them and scoring goals. Mm. So, yeah. Well, We'll be looking forward to that in Tuesday's edition of the Totally Football Show, in which we'll discuss the other big European games midweek, like your Borussia Dortmund Barcelona, and of course Real Madrid Paris Saint Germain. Ooh. Uh, also, we'll be talking about why Chris Smalling is now called Smaldini in Rome, and whether Poch is going to go somewhere in Europe. All that kind of stuff in Tuesday's edition. Tune in for that. Leicester is still second. Filthy weather and a filthy Brighton side who hadn't lost at home since August. But Leicester doing the Seagulls 2-0. That's five wins in a row for Ben and Rogers. Foxes, 17 goals scored, only one conceded, four consecutive clean sheets, only eight goals conceded all season, and 80 million in the bank for Harry Maguire. Very nice. Yeah, they that, that defensive record, most clean sheets in the league, fewest goals conceded in the league, having sold their flagship central defender, and with two very attacking wing-backs. You know, mm. Ricardo Pereira and Ben Chilwell, probably the second most attacking pair of full-backs in the league, is a testament to Rodgers, kind of the energies instilled in that team, but also Wilfred Ndidi, who has been probably the best central midfielder in the Premier League this season, maybe. Really? I'm touting that rather than saying it with any certainty, but maybe. Must be up there. No one's going to challenge you, I think, Daniel. I'm looking well, I'm around. there with Fabinho, I think. Yeah. yeah, I'd agree with that. Okay. All right. Leicester are not going to be in Europe this week. They're not going to Qatar for the Club World Cup. How worried are you, Sasha? <laughs> well, there's that game on the 26th of December. I'm looking at that as the game that Liverpool are probably likely to lose. 
uh, because it is at at Leicester. That's when they come back. Yeah, from, when they come back uh, from Qatar, yeah. uh, straight after. I, I think that's possibly the next difficult. Well, that is their next difficult match. Right. And I think you know they only won two 0 at Brighton, but um, XG of three point four seven, nine shots on target. They absolutely battered Brighton, mm. and this is Brighton, as you said, who have been very very good at home and. It's, uh, it's just really, really impressive. And I right. think, again, testament to Rodgers as coach. And perhaps, again, it's uh, maybe worth for a coach to come maybe a few months into the season as he did last year to put some you know, fundamentals down and then you have the proper summer to work actually on your team. Spurs for the title next year. I hear what you're saying, <laughs> Sasha. <laughs> Leicester do have a European fixture this week. It's their Christmas party, which is taking place, I believe, mm. this evening in Copenhagen. Pictures uh, circulating on social media. Like Copenhagen. No, I think Casper Schmeichel's organised it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah, that makes sense. They're all in costume, and uh, there's a lot of debate about who is Mr. Blobby, but uh, Ben Chilwell's Tinkerbell, apparently. Harvey Barnes going as Buzz Lightyear. Uh, Mark Albrighton is an elf. If we've learnt one thing from those trips, it's for no one to take camera phones. Right. Mm. Mm. Anyway, more on that, perhaps on Thursday's Totally Football Show. After this, Potch Watch, as we discuss... The managers under pressure who may not make it through the week. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Getting a road named after you in your hometown, special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegambleaware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Welcome back, listener. I've just got Daniel's joke about the camera phones. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on. I called Man City Chelsea the second most entertaining game of the weekend. I'm. What would you have up in first? Let's see if we agree on this, Michael. Uh, Burnley again? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, United uh, Manchester United against Sheffield United. That was Brilliant. amazing, wasn't yeah. it? Amazing. What happened? Well, I've no idea what happened in that ten minutes spell when Manchester United got back into it because they'd been wretched for the first half hour. I mean, everything about them. They couldn't play through midfield. The movement up front was awful. I almost don't want to say any more about Phil Jones because he's copped so much stick and I kind of right. feel sorry for him. But it was all over the shop. It was absolutely shambolic. Even the the left-back uh, Williams, I thought, looked really beleaguered. Got a silly booking for an awful tackle. Good was, goal, was though. Was miscontrolling the ball out of play and then scored this brilliant goal yeah. with, his, with his weaker right foot. And that just set them back in uh, motion. But it was bizarre. I thought over the 90 minutes, I thought Sheffield United dominated probably about 70 of it. That goal, though, I thought the most uh, exciting Brandon uh, development since they did that pot noodle deal at at, uh, Man United. Brandon. (laughs) Okay, never mind. But it was a fantastic goal. Camera (laughs) phones. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, as you say, issues all over. Gary Neville was in full flow. On his yeah, former club. Just to be clear, the yeah. phrase "short your ship out" is not a thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also, describing you know, the midfield as not a midfield, just a couple of players they've got left, and the front three as a joke. Yeah, I mean, there was having come back from the international break, where Daniel James was brilliant for Wales and Rashford was really good for England. Moving around, they were pretty still, but I do like Neville when he gets into that kind of 
It's not even faux anger. It's just raw anger at right. players not being good enough and not moving. And he, he hates a lack of movement. That's what he used to hate about Lukaku. He, he absolutely abhors players who don't move around and look for the ball. Is that an argument to say that, again, they just got a lucky break because I think Basham should have cleared that header properly and instead he just nodded it on to Williams, who was in acres of space, and suddenly they have a bit of confidence going forward. I thought the Rashford ball, actually, for the second was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, uh, Like, really an excellent ball. And perhaps in the third, they're helped by the fact this is a backup goalkeeper mm. because he comes out and completely mm. overcommits. Um, but what I found really... Well, there's two things I actually found really, really impressive about Sheffield United. I'm sure pretty sure we could say about 20 things. But the way they score the second, uh, because Musi actually wins the ball in midfield, goes forward, but it's McGoldrick taking away Maguire. And before he understands what happened, there's a huge gap where Maguire is supposed to be. He right. never recovers. And then also for the 3-0, the passing of Sheffield United in the 90th minute against Manchester United, it's just extraordinary. The calmness on the ball, of movement, brilliant. And Michael, you wrote an interesting piece uh, earlier in the week mm-hmm. talking about how people are perhaps losing sight of the big picture with the Blades because of this... You know, because of the popularity of this overlapping centre-halves business. Yeah. And you talk also about the way that McGoldrick functions yeah. in that. Which, I mean, basically everybody's up playing centre-forward at some point of the match, as far as I can <laughs> tell. Which is fine, but how do they get away with it, given that they've also got a really good defensive record? Not so much in this game, but generally they have. Yeah, I mean, they, they generally keep two central midfielders in front of the back four. Oh, sorry, in front of the back three. I think that is almost the biggest mystery, which I must admit I haven't really looked at properly in terms of why their defensive record is so good. But yeah, on McGoldrick, I think at the moment he's probably the most underrated player in the Premier League. I haven't really heard anyone talking about him. People talk about the centre-backs, about uh, Lundstrom, of course, who's scoring a lot of goals. But McGoldrick's movement is brilliant. His link play, he's just got a brilliant appreciation of the system. The one thing he hasn't done is score goals, and he should have scored a goal here when he headed it straight to Haya. So what does he do? What is his function in all this? I mean, he almost, he starts as a, Second striker, I would say, but he's always peeling off to the flanks. He's always dropping deep. He creates overloads. Defenders don't know how to follow him. And I think he, he really understands the way that they try and overload the flanks. He's He plays quite quite easy passes, but they're very deliberate, very purposeful passes to the uh, to the wing backs and the centre backs and even the central midfielders who overlap. And the number of times that they get kind of four versus three and even five versus four situations down the flanks is something you don't really see that often. Um, I, I compared it to the way Ajax played in uh, the, the Champions League last year and a Sheffield United fan said, actually, Ajax are playing the Sheffield United way, <laughs> nice. which I quite liked. Yeah. On, on McGold, it's such a perfect example of how a player can have his career completely reinvigorated because you know, I'm a Nottingham Forest fan and he was released in 2013 by Forest, um, having not particularly done well, having not scored many goals, having not actually looked like he was working that hard, which is exactly what he does now. So to to go from that to leading a line, you know, by definition and also by kind of reputation in the Premier League is is astonishing, really. And right. then obviously the, the player that comes on for him, Billy Sharp, Forrest sold him for £500,000 <laughs> as well. So it's, it is, I mean, with Sharp, he is a Sheffield boy. You can see why he, but McGoldrick, that's remarkable, I think. Can you say the same thing about Elise Mousset? And how much will his, what is it, a hamstring injury? How much does that Yeah, I mean, they say that on commentary, they felt for Sheffield United because he was, he was literally, the ball was about to go up to bring him off anyway. Mm. Um, he looked wretched at Bournemouth. Uh, he just had no confidence, barely started games, which doesn't help, but that's Chris Wilder. Um, he is a, a far, far better manager than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and it, was, it made me laugh that Solskjaer tried to kind of mimic their system, having 
never really played it before and Sheffield United just went well yeah we've been doing this for a long time and we know what we're doing so we'll just make you look very silly he kind of copied the system but then also left two versus three in centre midfield which is it just looked a bit of a nonsense Sasha would you say that this came down in the end to the keepers because Sheffield United didn't have Henderson and Man United did have De Gea back to being I don't think so I think I think you know, De Gea saved them a couple of times, but I think you know, so, sometimes you they United got got that uh, got that bit of fortune, and I, I think also the way what you were saying, the way United were dominated first half. I think it was thirty eight minutes in, um, and I think Tom Williams pointed out on Twitter as well. I'm glad we agreed. They played a short corner, and then Fred just hoofed the ball out of play when he was trying to put it in the box, and it just showed that how mentally they were chasing shadows and they were completely shot. Right, but I mean the, the fact that they got a point from this game, despite being yeah, completely I, dominated. I, I think that's this new diminished expectations with Manchester United. Mm-hmm. You know, they they leaked after Pochettino was sacked. They very obviously leaked to the media that. They liked Solskjaer because they had this vision. He had this vision of taking the club forward, and they're doing that after their worst start to a league season in over thirty years. And they then go and draw away at Sheffield United, which Sheffield United are playing brilliantly. But Manchester United should be expecting to win that game, mm. and it just feels like, oh well, it's okay because he's got this vision, which like his whole vision is thinking about what happened twenty years ago and then hoping it's still relevant, and it isn't still relevant. It's so. just it's so based around PR. Even yeah. his post-match interview, he came on and he mentioned the average age of the three Manchester United goal scorers, which is kind of an interesting commentary line. But for a manager to say, I just think really strange. You've just been outplayed by Sheffield United. I know there's a big emphasis on bringing through youth, and and that is fundamentally a good mm. thing. But just always falling back on the same old themes, I find quite extraordinary considering they're ninth in the table and about nine points off the top four. 20 points behind Liverpool and we're in November. Exactly. It's remarkable, isn't it? All right, there's only one potch available, but there's at least four clubs who might be looking for a manager (laughs) in uh, the short term. Man United, I think, still very much Mm. seen uh, in that condition. West Ham, we've talked about. What about uh, Emery at Arsenal and Marco Silva at Everton? Marco Silva, whose uh, Toffees lost 2-0 at home to Norwich. Norwich, who just lost previously to Watford, who hadn't scored an away goal since the opening day of the season, but got two here, who'd picked up just one point since beating City in mid-September. And this is the noise that Goodison made at the final whistle. This was the last easy game before a horrific run of fixtures. (laughs) They've got, yeah, Leicester, Leicester, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester United, I think. Yeah. yeah. Not necessarily in that order. No, no, no. Yes, but but the, I mean, the, the weird thing about Everton is Silva has talked about their misfortune before and they're sixth for chances created. And the weird one is that only Man City have conceded fewer shots than Everton. They should be OK. And yet they've lost to four bottom half teams and Burnley and Sheffield United. So, yeah, he will walk this week, I think. Do you think? Because yeah. Marco, I mean, possibly even today, Marco writing in saying, uh, AC Jimbo, you're at the Epstein Theatre this evening for Totally Live in Liverpool. Last time, I'd forgotten this, last time we went up there, when we got on the train, Martinez was Everton manager, and when we got off it at Lime Street, he wasn't. Wow. Mm. Uh, what about Norwich, though, who looked a lot better, Sasha? Again, you know, caveat that it is against Everton, but um, they kept chances to a minimum. I don't, did, did Everton even have any clear-cut chances in this game? But this this was a narrative so far. Um, they have so many injuries. 
and Timmerman was, I think, one of those players who was out. Christoph Timmerman, yeah, who's back in now. Back in. So once they, yeah. they get the familiar players and once they stop having Teddy at centre-back, right. uh, this is when they, they will actually play football they're more familiar with. Also, clearly, um, something was done with Cantwell, uh, right. who horribly lost his form just before international break because he came in and he had that swagger that he had in the first two, three weeks of the season uh, about him. But also from Everton's point of view, the goal that Norwich scored, the opener, this we've seen this before. You know, mm. Pookie plays in Cantwell the other way around. They were doing this earlier. So has Silva not done his homework again? Are his players listening? But I think from Norwich's point of view, I would like them to stay up because I think the endeavour is there to play football uh, as opposed to some of the other teams down there. Well, breaking news this morning, Daniel, mm. is that they're considering either David Moyes or... Eddie Howe, making who's... a change before the Leicester game at the weekend. But isn't Eddie Howe already in work? Yeah, it'll be difficult to do that in four days unless they've already scouted him out, which probably means that David Moyes, if they are thinking along those lines, it probably means David Moyes to the end of the season, doesn't it? And then how afterwards if they can get him. Brilliant. The thing nice. is that they're four points of relegation now with the run of games coming up. Yeah. Well, yeah, but... Uh, it is a miserable run of games. Did anyone watch Mark Hughes at Southampton? Well, uh-huh. <laughs> right. What about the game at the Emirates then? Saints v. Aints, as mm. I like to dub it. 2-2... Two, nice. two. Heartbreaking for Saints, who hadn't won away to Arsenal in something like 30 years and were barely seconds away from pulling it off this time. And it would have been a deserved victory. Yeah, It's not a good look for a manager if um, uh, I saw many Arsenal fans kind of cursing their team scoring a late equaliser because it meant that Emery would be more likely to keep his right. job. It's oh, not, we're there, are we? Yeah, it's not a great look, is it? Mm. And also, this, this is a game that Southampton should have put away in injury time, I think, at least twice. And the stat that's been bandied about is just how many shots Arsenal concede. Um, 225 so far, which is the most. And Southampton, 21 shots against Arsenal after having 13 in the previous three games put together. So Arsenal, just the system doesn't seem to be working at all. They're not closing anyone down. And Socrates getting um, bullied off the ball by Cedric kind of summed it up. Right. It's worrying for the teams that we mentioned, Everton and West Ham, who are <clears throat> small margin above the bottom three, when you have teams like Norwich and here Saints suddenly showing signs of life. Is there any positive for Arsenal, the fact that instead of squandering a lead this time, they actually came from behind? No, not really. I mean, they have done that quite a lot under Emery, particularly the first half of his first season. But uh, I think things are really quite quite bleak now for Arsenal. They haven't won in six Premier League games. There's no sign of any style here. They're defending for, well, particularly the first goal. Not even the way they conceded it, but in the build-up, just Louise was playing a weird offside line with two players behind him. Chambers switched off. Bellerin, poor lad, hasn't really looked his, uh, his best since he came back from injury. I just find it difficult, really, to find anything that makes you, you think Emery should stay. I, I, mm. I don't know what his plan is. He's made a, a stream of very odd decisions. He's alienated the fan base and, and seemingly one of Arsenal's best players in Ozil as well. I don't quite know what's been going on with him. Yeah, there's, it's been a real, a real failing over the last 10 or 11 months in particular for Emery. I think he kind of muddled through his first half of the season and Arsenal fans kind of retained some level of... Uh, you know, understanding it was going to be difficult to succeed Wenger, but uh, there's there's really nothing there at the moment. Emery to West Ham by the end of the week, mm. Daniel. I mean, we are getting to the stage where Arsenal's decision makers are kind of complicit because this has been going on for so long now and often a, a club will guard against sacking a manager because they worry about fans thinking they're you know, knee-jerking. But with Arsenal, it's the opposite now. They've kind of said, oh, we're going to rail against this noise of fans protesting and fans saying it's not good enough. Well, but they're right. It isn't good enough. So it's, it seems a remarkable hill to die on. Yeah, absolutely. In the meantime, happy days for the likes of Sheffield United, Wolves and Burnley who are occupying 
places up near the top of the table where you'd normally expect the Gunners and Man United. We'll touch on those teams after this. Wolves in fifth place. As you mentioned, uh, Daniel, wasn't long ago they were winless and penultimate and looking mm. in real trouble and unable to combine the demands of a Europa League campaign with their Premier League commitments mm. no longer. No? Uh, well, it just shows how you don't actually have to be particularly good to be in... Sheffield United aside, you don't actually have to be particularly good to be fifth in the Premier League at the moment because I don't think they've been brilliant over the last five or six games, but they're just getting it done by um, by getting it done. And Bournemouth gave them a massive help by Simon Francis coming back from injury. He got two yellows very quickly and that was kind of game over. But Michael is probably happy to talk about him, but Jao Moutinho was brilliant again on Saturday. He's, right. I mean, a remarkable player at his age. At a the remarkable moment. free kick as well. Why, why is everyone so excited about that free kick? I mean, did you see it? Yeah. I mean, viciously whipped from that angle, you know, such a little area of the goal to to Mm. aim for. I thought it was brilliant, and it's quite nice because I mean, he doesn't score that many goals, so for him to actually get on the score sheet, he really doesn't. But I actually, I don't mean to be too like alternative, but I actually preferred the second goal. You know, the well worked free kick. I thought that was a brilliant pass from Moutinho in behind for Traore, and such an easy finish for Jimenez. But the build up was great, and yeah, I'm a massive Moutinho fan. I think he's one of the best players in the Premier League. It uh, looks like they signed, he signed a new contract extension until mm. 2022 as well. Nice. He's the kind of player who can go on a long time because oh, yeah. he's never been quick and he's never been about covering ground. You know, he mm. can he can play until he's 37, I expect. Wolves next up in the Premier League will be at home to Sheffield United. Before that, Thursday, they take on Braga. It's away, Daniel, is that right? It is, yes. In Braga. In Braga, yes. Uh, they needed a point there uh, to confirm their place in the knockout stages, excitingly. Mm-hmm of the European Yeah, and League. that was a tough group because they had Braga and Besiktas and Slovan Bratislava. It's, it wasn't an easy group. They got a rough deal and looked to have negotiated pretty well. Tough, Very nice. uh, tough place to go, Braga. The fans are behind the goal. <laughs> <laughs> Rock solid. Hard-nosed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Sheffield Wolves. Oh, yeah, Burnley. Burnley, who are lying seventh and had another 3-0 win, this time at Watford. We said it about uh, Spurs and West Ham, and this was Watford being absolutely dreadful again. Uh, that new manager bounce uh, doesn't seem to have kicked in. Uh, yeah, they were they were awful. Burnley just ex- they did what they do, which is they're patient, and then they exposed the Watford's weaknesses. Mm. Um, fair play to Sean Dyche, two three nil wins in a row, as you say, because they were just slipping down the table. But you, as again, you don't have to be that good to be a seventh in the Premier League. Watford, meanwhile, are in 20th place now. They've dropped into last. Yeah, I really like Watford. I love going there. It's a really nice football club, good community links in that, and I love them being in the Premier League. But if they go down, I'll have no sympathy because I think the managerial change was one of the stupidest I've ever seen. I thought Javi Gracia was doing a decent job. I know that the form at the end of last season wasn't great, but they were looking towards the FA Cup final. Okay, that didn't go well, but it's understandable. Their underlying numbers at the start of the season were perfectly fine. They chose to get rid of him for a guy who, by all accounts, had completely fallen out with the board in his previous spell, mainly over the fact they thought he was completely unprofessional and just not putting in the hours and not dedicating himself to the job. So I can't see the reason for the switch. And aside from uh, a bit of a, you know, against Arsenal, they're okay, I think, when yeah. they drew. But mm. aside from that, I think they've just been so much worse I than think They had a win against Norwich. That was the only yeah, thing. They, they, yeah, they've kept three clean sheets in nine, but two of them were nil-nil draws and they conceded 
eight at Man City, and they, yeah, they just don't. It doesn't look any uh, different enough to justify. Right, the Troy move. Deeney returning off the bench in this game. I'm curious, what would be the what would be the competition for this in terms of the worst managerial decisions? You're saying bringing uh, Kiki Sanchez Flores back. Ever. Mark Hughes in at Saints. Well, no, he kept no, them up, to be fair. Up, yeah. They right. were struggling under Pellegrino. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, a, there's a, like the, the ones that people remember, like the Ricky Shbregia at Sunderland and right. Terry Connor at Wolves and things. Oh, but that was so unfair. But they are, they are people Alan who Alan Shearer at Newcastle, would that fall into that case? He didn't do very well. Stuart Pearce at Forest um, didn't do very well. Right. The guy at Huddersfield last season? Uh, yes, Jan Sievert. Sievert. Go on, give us another one, Michael. West Brom. Yeah, Alan Pardew didn't do very well there. I think that's fair to say. But uh, again, this was so early in the season as well. I just, I, I can't I, understand I honestly it. think the only good side is there is still time to make another change. It was interesting hearing Sam Allardyce on TalkSport this morning talking about, I mean, he... Has he, he got his DVD re- well, he said, ready? Well, he said, he said Aladici before a few years ago. This yeah. morning he said Aladicio. So he's obviously <laughs> South American rather than Italian, <laughs> okay. which I thought showed the maybe that shows the the change global. in global culture in the Premier the, League. Um, the, the wonderful <laughs> story that about uh, what was the fixture they were talking about? That, that oh had... yeah, Gail Givet talking about Blackburn Rovers against That's Man it. United, where apparently Allardyce showed them Gladiator and Three Hundred, and uh, there's in a lo- pre-match build. Yeah, there's a lovely line aside from Givet where he says. Jive makes mimicking soldier stabbing enemy <laughs> action. Right. Uh, and then, they, yeah, they were 3-0 down within about 15 minutes and lost 7-1. Right. I have to say, it didn't go very well for the Spartans at Thermopylae. <laughs> no, either, no, so. yeah. Difficult yeah, place to go, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. Oh, you know what? That's this uh, weekend in the Premier League. We've still got loads to talk about, haven't we, Sash? Because there was the Copa Libertadores final in Lima. How exciting that was. First of all, though, here's producer Ben who's speaking to Paddy Power. Thank you very much, Jimbo. Here he is, Lee Price from Paddy Power on the line. Lee, let's start with managerial issues. Um, All sorts of clubs looking to replace their manager. None did as we recorded this show. I think Rafa Benitez is going to come back to one of them. Give us the odds, please. (laughs) Well, he's been doing a bit of PR recently, hasn't he? I heard him on the radio last week. And it's five to four. He's back in the Premier League this season. It's only slightly longer, 6-4. to four. He's the next West Ham boss with Pellegrini under a lot of pressure there. Speaking of under pressure, it's 8-1. to one. He's the next Arsenal manager. And only slightly longer, 17-2. to two. He's the next Everton boss where Marco Silva is 1-3 to three to be the next top flight manager out of a job. There's quite a race going on there. Leicester were again really impressive this weekend at Brighton. Can they continue this form and finish second? Yeah, it's funny this. I was thinking over the weekend, it's a bit weird that Man City are 9-4 to, to win the Premier League title despite being behind Leicester, who are 40-1 to to win the league again. And that probably goes some way to explaining the following numbers. It's 14-1 to that Leicester remain in second place. But it is odds-on, 4-9, they finish in the top four, so not completely doing any damn foxes. And finally, Wolves, unbeaten in 10 in all competitions. They're against Braga this midweek in the Europa League. Can they go all the way and win it? Well, they're certainly in the mix. They're 18-1, to four favourites, but they trailed two English teams and one Europa League specialist. Manchester United are the favourites. Yes, really. Arsenal are second favourites. <laughs> yes, still really. And then Sevilla are third favourites. But Wolves then come next in the betting. Could be interesting to see who drops out of the Champions League, though. That might change everything. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, 
stop. Saturday evening, the fun stopped for a lot of train fans, Sasha. A lot of upset train fans tuning in to see Michael Portillo's Great Train Journeys of Australia and instead finding themselves in some kind of hipster nightmare. On South a different America, continent. On a different continent. The Copper Libtard, as I like to call it. <laughs> So-called biggest game of the weekend. Uh, as uh, River Plate took on Flamengo at the Estadio, <laughs> Estadio <laughs> Monumental in Lima. How much did you enjoy this and the remarkable finale, Sasha? I actually thoroughly enjoyed it because it ticked all the boxes. Uh, the both teams were played pretty predictable lineups apart from 4-4-2 perhaps for Flamengo but I like the fact that a river looked like a well-coached team by a coach who's been there for years mm. they cynically fouled the entire game as they have been doing the entire tournament they're the most they've been the most fouled and the most have you been watching side. all the way through not quite all the way through but I've, I've been following river, river play quite a bit and here I just like they committed 25 fouls but basically every time they lost they completely rattled Flamengo Flamengo couldn't play this is Flamengo who ran five goals past Grêmio in the previous round and they just got in their faces and Flamengo couldn't cope, conceded an early goal. And after that, the river just killed and killed and killed the game. But I thought there was that there was a mistake to bring on Prato in the 75th minute, who just lost the ball every time. Question marks about whether Quintero should have come on. Quintero, who is coming back from an ACL injury, the most crea- the creative number 10, effectively. Looks like Cachardo didn't want to risk him, but I wonder whether he should have put him on for the last 15, 20. And to be honest... I really feel forever played because this is the Bayern, the Bayern Champions League final moment. Right. Uh, whereby so it's two minutes from the end, yeah. they're still 1-0 one up. 1-0 one up, for the Flamengo are terrible. Uh, Gabi Gol, the, the forward who scored now 40 goals this season, is absolutely awful. Right. And they lose the ball in midfield and get caught. And this is what it sounded like on Brazilian TV as Mingau equalised. And then a minute into extra time, or time added on, boom, Gabi Goal again. And next up for Flamengo in terms of international trips, they're taking on Liverpool. And I think they'll struggle because given how much they struggled with Rivers Press. Right. Liverpool is, I think, next level up. Did you know that last time they won, the, the only other time they won the Copa Libertadores, it was in 1981, they went on to the Intercontinental Cup final. Do you know who they played? Liverpool. And what happened? Don't know. They won 3-0. So it was an interesting weekend for uh, Flamengo because they won the Libertadores on Saturday and because other results went their way on the Sunday, they also clinched the league title. Without playing. Yeah, so to win... Uh, to win the double within the space of a weekend is uh, pretty unique, I'm sure. Incredible. I quite like the fact that there's been a resurrection of a name from the past, given the chat this weekend. So obviously a lot of made of the fact that Jorge Jesus, as a European, won the Copa Libertadores. And everyone's remembered the former Yugoslav youth coach, uh, Mirko Jozic, who I won... Who won yeah. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, hipsters. Yeah. Um, who won the title with Colo Colo in 1991. Colo Colo, at the time, sponsored by Lada. Thanks, Sasha. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks. All right, for more, more of an in-depth look at uh, this 
hugely important game. Biggest game in the hemisphere this weekend, or perhaps in any hemisphere this weekend. Let's now speak to South American football journalist Nick Ellerby, who's been working for CopaLibertadores.com. The magnitude of this Libertadores win for Flamengo really can't be understated. They've got about 40 million fans in Brazil, which is about 20% of the country. Uh, 25,000 Flamengo fans made the journey over to Lima, some of them getting a bus journey for about 116 hours. I heard reports of people flying to Lisbon and then back out to Lima from Rio because the flights around South America are really expensive. And because of the last minute change of venue, the prices were absolutely crazy. It's Flamengo's first Libertadores win for 38 years and actually... 38 years to the day. So in 1981, on the 23rd of November as well, Zico's team with that excellent side that featured uh, Agilio and Junior as well from that Brazil 82 team. And Flamengo fans, they've been without without a major trophy for, for 10 years. Um, the club went through some restructuring. Uh, they told the fans, look, just bear with us. There was an excellent uh, period of administration between sort of 2013 and 2018 where they sorted the finances out. They started investing in the in the uh, the youth academy. And then now you're, you're sort of seeing that. They've been able to spend quite big once again. This team actually have three of the top four uh, transfers ever in Brazilian football. Um, so they've been able to spend, and their academy as well, starting to produce players. You can see that obviously Pakatar and, and Vinicius Jr. made big money moves. So that money helped them out. Then they got uh, Jesus on board and um, they managed to uh, they managed to do it. I mean, it was a, it was a hell of a finish. Nick, those two goals for Gabigol, who was a tremendous flop uh, for Inter in Serie A, but is still owned by the Nerazzurri, do you think there's any chance that he might come back and have another pop at Europe? I think he's probably going to have to make that decision over the next few days. And um, I mean, I think he's holding all the cards at the moment. Flamengo want to buy him. Uh, they've got, they had a deal in place. It was never finalised, but for, for 20 million euros to buy him back off Inter. Um, yeah, he had, he had a terrible time at Inter and then on loan uh, at Porto. I think he only played 15 times over two seasons, scoring twice. And then he came back, played for Santos last year. And he was actually top scorer in the Brazilian league last year. And he's on course to be the top scorer again. He's got 22 in the league. He was top scorer in the Libertadores. He actually touched the trophy on the way out uh, to the pitch and everybody was holding their, their head in their hands in Brazil because, I mean, you saw Payet, I think, do it in the 2018 Europa League. He was injured, came off after about half an hour. Apparently Gattuso did it in the 2005 Champions League final as well. So, And Brazil is such a superstitious country that people were just in disbelief that he did this. And it looked like it was all sort of going to be too much. He had, he had actually played terribly and then just from nowhere managed those uh it was an easy finish for the equalizer but he was in the right place and then that high ball that uh, Diego put in for the for the winner so I think it's possible we could see Gabby Gold in the Premier League or any European club but Flamengo will be doing everything they can to keep him Excellent. All right. Well, that takes us to the end of today's Totally Football Show. Many thanks to you all for being with us today, Daniel, Michael and Sasha, and you too, listener. Tuesday, we're back with the European Roundup, and then Thursday, uh, Totally's regular edition returns. Hope you have a great time. Until then, for now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. 
You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. <laughs>